Welcome to McKnight's Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information from industry leaders. Hi, I'm Kim Marcellus, Senior Editor of McKnight's Long-Term Care News. On today's Newsmaker Podcast, we're here to talk about a proposed federal staffing minimum and the effects it could have, maybe even some you haven't thought of yet, on nursing homes. Joining me are Drew Graham, a partner at Hall Boo Smith, who created his firm's long-term care practice group, and Stephen Littlehale, a gerontological clinical nurse specialist and chief innovation officer at Zimit Healthcare Services Group. Stephen also happens to be a popular guest blogger here at McKnight's. So let's get into the meat of it. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So currently, we know SNFs are required to provide an RN eight hours a day and otherwise provide sufficient staffing for resident needs. Of course, there's been a lot of movement around that and a lot of talk about that standard since early this year. Uh, First, CMS signaled its new focus on staffing by announcing it was making data on weekend staffing and turnover public. And then the White House, of course, announced its intentions uh, to issue its first federal staffing mandate. So, Stephen, maybe you can start us off here. What do we know so far about the CMS grand plan, uh, both on the data and what the staffing rule could ultimately look like? Sure. Thank you very much for the, the question. I think the issue of staffing and staffing mandates have been um, kicked around for, wow, over 20 years now. But it seems like now is the moment. It kind of seems like the planets are aligning in that we may actually see real, authentic minimum staffing requirements that that go beyond the hard-to-define terms such as sufficient staffing. So we've already seen new staffing data being added to Care Compare. That data, if providers haven't seen it, uh, really is quite telling, and it, it really gives lots of insight into your organization. So it's looking basically at two different components. That is the staff stability within your organization. And it's also looking at the consistency of staff all days of the week, looking specifically at the differences, if there are any, between Monday and Friday and the weekends. And those two staffing uh, metrics that are added really were, were done at the behest of the GAO and their recommendations to CMS about how to strengthen the argument or, or strengthen the oversight of, of staffing uh, within nursing homes across the U.S. In terms of what the White House is pointing towards in terms of minimum staffing, well, one is the requirement to complete a staffing study within a year, and we can talk about that separately. And then ultimately, that also within a year, that there would be a minimum standard for staffing requirement that is put out there that will look very different than the somewhat ambiguous language that we have today. Yeah, and I'll just add, um, again, Kim, thank you for allowing us to, for allowing me to be part of this. I, Stephen has certainly done an excellent job explaining the health policy and where this all might go as, uh, uh, from a litigation perspective, certainly around personal injury litigation that providers are concerned about. Uh, I think the data that Stephen talked about that we expect to see will 
really cut both ways in many instances. Those providers that are staffing at levels that are um, adequate and good for their facilities will be able to show that through the public data. Those that are struggling will be incentivized to, to change, but I think it's a positive development in some ways. But I understand certainly some of the initial concerns that I know we're going to talk about in a minute. Yeah. And maybe, Stephen, if you want to follow up on that from the legal perspective, I, I think there is a lot of fear. But really, I want to get a sense of what does this effort mean if I'm a nursing home operator? All of this data is becoming public and, and we can probably safely assume that the ability to meet a minimum standard would also be publicized at some future point you know, what? what is the potential impact, legal and otherwise, uh, for nursing homes? Uh, sure. I, I really encourage providers to immediately take a look at the new data that has been made publicly available about them and, and try to approach it from the perspective of what can I learn, what can I glean, how can I rethink my staffing and improve my operations? You know, putting aside for a moment and, and really, truly just a moment that we're in almost an unprecedented staffing shortage that we've ever seen in uh, all of healthcare it is really remarkable to even pretend to put that aside for a moment. But but let's do that. I, I actually reported on this a few months ago in my McKnight's blog. If you look at the turnover data and if you look at the staffing stability every day of the week, we studied that and we, we studied that in terms of how much of a correlation is there between those elements of turnover and consistency with things such as five star, uh, being on the SFF list, having an abuse tag and, and several other dependent variables. And sure enough, there really is a lot of consistency in those metrics and these negative outcomes, you know, meaning simply if you have a lot of turnover or you have inconsistent staffing across the seven days, you're more likely to have these clinical and survey outcomes that are really quite negative. So, so there is something there and that data is for you to use. Uh, it's not just about you, it's for you to use. Now, in terms of the, the staffing minimums, we don't know what those are yet. That, that will be the outcome of a study. We don't know what the study is going to look at and how it's going to be constructed. But we can turn to a, a prior study that was done in 2001 that was really actually quite fascinating, very conclusive, and yet not acted upon. In this study in 2001, which was done by APT Institutes and sent to Congress, they were requiring or recommending a 4.1 direct care staff. And of course, that breaks down into RNs, LPNs, and CNAs. What I really liked about the study is it looked at the short-term and the long-term populations. And it also um, defined very clearly what were the dependent variables that they were studying. What was goodness? In other words, the, the ratio is the ratio, but what does 4.1 get me? And specifically, they looked at rehospitalization rates, they looked at the presence of um, incidents of pressure, ulcers, uh, skin trauma, weight loss, and other kinds of outcomes. That's really important. I don't know if that's how CMS will approach it this time. I kind of hope there's a little bit of that in there, but I hope that it'll also have other elements into it. But in terms of providers, right now, today, 
you should be looking at your staffing five-star scores. You should be specifically looking through Care Compare to see how your staffing compares to your peer groups in your county. And why I suggest in your county is that tends to kind of level the playing field and, and take into consideration uh, any local staffing challenges or shortages that you may have. So the data's there. Take a look at it today in, in, in anticipation for what's coming. Drew, do you want to talk a little bit more? You started to get at the, the legal implications here. Um, do you want to talk about that more later, or would you want to make a comment on that now in terms of, of implications? No, I think Stephen did a very nice job with that. I can talk about it a little bit more as we get into it, but there are certainly legal implications. One of the main issues, though, I hope that providers will keep in mind is that the visibility of the data, as Stephen mentioned, it, it can be extremely helpful for uh, the providers faced with litigation. And I, I can say now, and we can talk about it a little bit more in a minute, but historically, since the beginning of litigation in this space, in virtually all uh, personal injury lawsuits brought against uh, skilled nursing facility providers, there's been an allegation of understaffing. With this data and potentially with this commitment, uh, I think there's a new opportunity to, to rebut that in many cases and will eliminate those where that allegation was inappropriate. And I think we've already started to see that without a minimum, a federal minimum, just through the use of the PBJ data that's out there. So I understand the concerns, again, that uh, are out there, and, and we certainly don't want to minimize those from the provider community. But from a litigation standpoint, I do believe it's a little bit brighter than, than it might appear. So let's pivot a little bit and, and talk then about uh, kind of the the compliance uh, paradox that providers might be in. We've seen states struggling with the idea of, of staffing rules this year. Um, in the past week, we had New York finally enact its uh, staffing minimum after a couple of months delay. And just yesterday, the governor signed legislation in Florida reducing its staffing minimum as a recognition of major workforce uh, losses in the state. So once the CMS minimum arrive, arrives, whatever it looks like, how are providers going to navigate between that federal rule and any state minimum staffing rules that might already be on the books? Drew, I'll come back to you there. Sure. Uh, of course, those that are participating in the Medicare program, as most are, they're going to have to substantially comply with the conditions of participation. As I understand the rule, it will be part of that. So I think in terms of compliance, ultimately, the providers will have to comply with both. As I think the 2001 study and much academic study since then has shown virtually no states have staffed or are currently mandating minimum staffing requirements that that arise to the level of, of uh, those uh, those numbers that the academics are recommending. So big change both on the regulatory side and also on the financial side. Many of these states have low uh, Medicaid reimbursement rates, and there's big financial challenges to staff to any federal minimum, especially in the southern states and those states that just have historically um, had low Medicaid reimbursement. 
I want to come back to the idea of, of the study that uh, CMS has indicated they you're in, undertaking this any day now. Stephen, you started to talk about the 4.1 hour uh, minimum that was recommended but never actually uh, enacted. So, you know, what what would you like to see in addition uh, to some of that element from the previous study? What else do you think CMS should be uh, considering and, and what do you think they will consider? Um, both of you can weigh in here. So I, I look back at the 2001 study, um, and as I indicated earlier, there's things in it I think are just great. They, they really came to 4.1 because they determined that over 4.1, there was not any incremental value, meaning the outcomes didn't improve. And they were able to demonstrate that at at key intervals along the path to 4.1, you did see substantial definable differences. So I thought that was pretty cool. The one thing that we have always missed the boat on, though, when thinking about nursing homes is that we assume that they're all the same. We assume that if you met one nursing home, you met all 15,000 plus <laughs> nursing homes. And the reality is, is nursing homes, many of them, actually specialize. Now, by specialize, you know, you think in terms of a hospital, as soon as I say that, you say, well, you know, we don't, uh, outside of pediatrics or obstetrics, you know, really what's the specialization um, in a hospital setting? But in nursing homes, it's a little bit harder to discern. So you might find a disproportionate amount of people with mental illness or cognitive impairment in one building compared to others. And sure enough, when you, when you look at what their mission is or you look at what their community needs are, you find that specialization is, is organic, it's authentic, it's real. But they are compared, their data, their outcomes, their staffing needs, their financial outcomes, their quality outcomes, they're compared to the same nursing home that might be part of a um, life care community that abuts the country club that has a much younger population living there that have had an entire lifetime of different kinds of activities to, to keep them well. And they're compared as if they were the same. Uh, and then what, what's challenging is, is within those specialty populations, you know, vent care is another example, or or complex medical, or you'll, you'll still find a large, uh, another part of the segment in that same nursing home that looks like a traditional nursing home. So it's all blended together, and that makes studying those things I previously mentioned really challenging. So back to your question, what do I hope that they would consider? One is the acknowledgement that all nursing homes are not created equally in being able to identify the specialization within the industry. <clears throat> Something that has been studied, it has been published on, it's out there, and we should include that in making the recommendations. The other key piece here is, you know, how are we paying for this? It's Absolutely. great to say 4.1, but how are we paying for this? And uh, two, two comments about that. One is the, the White House is already indicating that they will include staffing uh, in uh, either next year or, or soon thereafter. Uh, the SNF value-based purchasing will now have total staffing 
per resident per day metrics added to it, along with other things. So that's very good. At least it's either going to be in the incentive pool. Um, we can debate if you know the SNF value-based purchasing is really a carrot or is it really a stick that's disguised as a carrot. But nevertheless, there is the acknowledgement that there needs to be a financial element to staffing requirements. And I think even more significant, Kim, the, the Committee on Quality of Care in Nursing Homes just this week released their recommendations. And they full on were consistent with the White House in recommending additional study, additional staffing, staffing minimums, staffing requirements. Um, but they also said that there has been significant um, underinvestment of financial resources at the federal and the state level for nursing homes. And they come right out and say, you know, it's great to say whatever ratio you want to say. It's wonderful to require a social worker in every building. It's great to say 24-7 RNs, but it needs to be funded. And today it's not funded. And, and I can add, Kim, I think one of the, the big issues for us in the civil litigation side of this and the, our litigator friends that are defending our providers is really the impact of these, um, whatever the regulatory number turns out to be or how it's structured. Uh, if CMS could, uh, and this is certainly wish list thinking here, but could clarify uh, how that, if at all, is intended to be used in civil litigation will certainly clear up you know, a lot for the provider community, the liability uh, insurance community and others. Right now, I think, unfortunately, as you everybody here knows, this is an extremely complicated health policy issue with a lot of moving parts and competing interests just on the health policy decision side. Uh, when that gets put in front of juries or argued in, in state courts around the country, I think it's um, sometimes the, the, uh, the numbers and the regulations get lost in the policy. So it would be uh, fantastic if CMS could consider how that is to be used. Now, we've seen, and we can talk about this in a little bit if, if we have time, but uh, a potential of, of potentially embracing this dual enforcement idea where uh, there's an idea that increased civil litigation will improve quality of care. Maybe this is for another discussion down the road, but I think that concept has been put under great scrutiny over the last few years by at least one study that found that it really is not the most economical way to change care outcomes is allow for personal personal injury type litigation on the state level. So my hope would be that when they do ultimately announce the number that they do provide some guidance as they are, I think, empowered to do through the either the regulation itself or the interpretive guidance about how this is to be used in litigation. So maybe a follow-up question there is, you know, certainly there are going to be providers who don't meet whatever this minimum is. Um, and, and providers are arguing right now, probably rightly so in many areas, that they don't have the workers if they're going to be required to, to bring on a lot more staff. Where are they going to get them from? Do you think there's any way CMS builds in an, an exception here based on if you have, you know, some type of metric, maybe a super low unemployment rate? in your area, would they give you some kind of, kind of an exception or maybe build a sliding target? How do they approach that with the workforce context that we're in? Well, absolutely. I think, I, you know, I'm not a, an expert on CMS rulemaking and would defer to others on that. But in terms of the, the impact of your question on, 
on ultimate civil litigation and keeping the funds that are used for resident care in you know the providers and and salaries and retention programs and so forth i think they could say uh, in certain instances that not substantially complying using the cms uh, cop term is not necessarily you know the basis for negligence or any other sorts of allegations on the provider side i think the providers certainly we have advised them for a while and i think now more than ever really understanding your labor market, documenting what's going on in your labor market, you know, to the extent that there are consultants with, you know, significant familiarity about what's going on in your very specific community, get those folks engaged, begin to document the challenges that you face, because there are some very, very compelling stories about the need for providers in the community, but with insufficient staff to, to meet these more generic uh, minimums. So I think a lot to come on that, but it is gonna be a fact-based question and understanding the facts and the situation on the ground is just going to be more important than ever. Stephen, I don't, I, this is a little bit uh, out of left field, but but are you aware of any other regulations that are kind of a sliding target that would show that, that CMS could do something like that? Or maybe, um, like you said, incentivize so that if you hit a certain threshold, you, you get one reward. If you hit another threshold, you get a better reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... Um... I I can say that some of the language coming out of the White House has kind of implied that this isn't going to be a flip the switch on the staffing minimums, that it would be phased in, there would be a period of time, et cetera, et cetera, that there would be part of the study um, uh, or, or part of their efforts will be to understand the local factors that were already mentioned on this in this conversation that that may deter or prevent a provider from achieving whatever the minimum is um and you know the fact that they're kind of blending it into value-based purchasing is kind of indirectly getting at what you're suggesting kim so so it's a, a good possibility i won't take you to uh, to bet on that but <laughs> sounds right. like it's a, it, right, right. it could be a way to a smart way to approach it mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's come back and talk a little bit about the idea of, of there could be two different lines of, of impact here. One could certainly be the survey and compliance route, and the other could be in the courtroom. And Drew, you started to touch on this. We had a conversation previously kind of about uh, sometimes the public pressure of uh, having the public see you miss certain marks. Uh, that may be more powerful or just as powerful as, as penalties. And then I guess, Stephen, you could maybe talk a little bit about how big the penalties could be around this. And, and given the cost of maybe meeting staffing minimums, would penalties be enough to move the needle? Would providers wanna do it? So who wants to jump in first? I could just quickly comment on the uh, idea that civil litigation can ultimately, as a health policy tool, improve outcomes. I think it's a very, very difficult analysis to make, I guess, academically. But again, there's been some studies that that have uh, concluded that this is not the right instrument for the outcome change. And we're seeing, uh, you know, very significant verdicts in the last six months involving individual resident care there's been a very some very significant class action litigation uh, that ultimately drains resources from providers and interested parties and i think it's certainly you know a question of the decision makers is this the tool you want to use to to try to change 
provider behavior. In those situations where there are rural communities or providers are limited in terms of their options, and now post COVID with you know a lot a lot of long term care care staff leaving the business, I think, you know, we really need to think about whether we want to keep that business or keep that money in the provider community doing what it's supposed to do or allow it to go out in terms of verdicts. So I think that's just a a very big question, but it is certainly happening. uh, And I don't know that we've seen anything that would substantiate a verdict changes behavior in a substantial way. And how about civil monetary penalties, Stephen? Um, Well, you know that that I, I think it, it, the same response applies here. I don't know <laughs> if I've seen CMPs really uh, penalties, survey penalties, changing behavior, um, and you know, having worked with so many different providers across the country, I always assume I'm going to see something when I see, for example, they're a one star or a two star building, or they have an abuse tag, or they've paid a lot out in CMPs and other kinds of penalties. I always expect I'm going to see the sort of downhill negative impact of that, you know, low occupancy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't. And I, I don't understand that. I always I always approach it as if I will, but I don't. Um, and what I would really what I get excited about is thinking about where we have an opportunity to identify what is the ideal staffing ratio, but to achieve what? To achieve what outcome? Is the, is the outcome we're trying to model with our um, required ratio, um, is it better surveys? Because I, I have absolutely no faith that survey and staffing have any kind of relationship whatsoever. There's, there's just so much bias within the survey process that you're not gonna, we're just not gonna get far with enticing a provider to increase staffing, uh, knowing that their survey is just really not gonna change. So, so what is it? Is it occupancy? Is it a, a payer mix that is more understandable and realistic to achieve some of the requirements um is it is is, can we somehow link um a with a certain staffing ratio in achieving certain outcomes can we lessen the regulatory requirements can we put more financial incentive that way to hitting these these staffing outcomes that are being tossed about but but like it, like Drew was just suggesting, I, I don't I don't think it's in CMPs that um, we're really going to motivate a change here. Yeah, someone else I was talking to this week talked about there was a study uh, just out that it's going to cost five hundred thousand dollars a year uh, if if I think that four point one were to come into play per nursing home five hundred thousand dollars a year. So imagine the amount of penalty you have to assess as a fine to motivate, you know, there, there's a risk reward for the provider. Why, if I'm only going to get penalized $5,000, why would I invest $500,000? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a, a crass way of looking at it, but uh, I think there has to be some mm-hmm. accepting of that, that supposition. 
All right. So let's talk about the provider perspective. Certainly, there's been a lot of talk about this and uh, that the big associations are, are on top of this. Um, kind of what is their strategy and, and how are they trying to shape this? And, and also any experience either of you have with providers who are doing this work and, and individual providers? I think ACA and Leading Age are certainly doing a, a very good job of engaging on, on many different levels. I know that many stakeholders have come to the table around this discussion that you know, maybe have been around before, but are engaging in a new way. So I think we have a huge opportunity uh, from all angles. It sounds like, you know, at least from our perspective that those messages are getting out. I hope that they're being heard. But this is a very, very important discussion from all levels, from, you know, the litigation side, regulatory, everything that we've talked about. And this is a perfect time to dialogue about it. I don't think everybody will go away from the discussion happy, but if we certainly continue understanding the different points of view, I think it's going to make a big difference. Um, I think that most most of the providers I've encountered certainly uh, are engaged and in, in the business for the right reasons, but the depth of the challenges that they face are tremendous. And I think to, to Stephen's comments very early on in this discussion, they're very localized and individual to the individual communities and homes and individual to the staff who are actually providing the care. You know, I, I, we spend a lot of time talking to staff and I would say that 4.1 staff in one building would not even remotely be the same as 4.1 of a staff in a different building. I mean, there's the quality needs to be incentivized. We have some remarkable providers out there and we need to do more uh, of what they're doing as individuals and that will strengthen the whole system. Yeah, I I completely agree with um, what Drew just shared. I would like to kind of highlight that the very last thing that was said is the, you know, highlighting the wonderful things that, that providers are doing and just add to it. We really need to encourage flexibility and creativity. Um, And what I mean by that is 4.1 is only RN, LPN, and CNAs. What about the facility that wants to, that sees the value and has access to, for example, therapy aides or more social workers? These are really important, or rec therapy, these are really important players on the interdisciplinary team. And maybe based on your particular unique case mix, you want to really have more of them at the bedside for whatever reason, for completely valid reasons, Mm -hmm. getting better outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not included in the 4.1. And they're not counted in five-star. And even prior to PBJ, if those folks were cross-trained, and they were providing support, for example, during mealtimes, you could count them as CNAs. And you can't do that any longer. So there's so much rigidity that has been added to the system, the regulatory system, that really thwarts our ability to be creative. And we're kind of asking the world right now, we're asking people to go find staff that don't exist and, and bring them and retain them. Well, I don't think we're asking them to do the impossible. I mean, again, putting the staffing shortage aside, but let's not ask them to do it with one hand tied behind their back. Right. Yep. I agree 100%. And that's great that you bring that up because there is some of that uh, flexibility in the new Florida rule, which you know consumer advocates have really opposed them walking back their requirement. And yet 
they are adding the ability of these other trained caregivers to be counted. So, you know, it's, you're never going to make everybody happy. (laughs) It's a a challenge for sure. All right. So I know we've, we've gone through a lot of topics very quickly, but I want to give you each a chance to um, have some, some closing thoughts for our listeners, Um, whether those are, you know, tips about what they should be doing now or, uh, words of wisdom or warning for for what's coming uh, in the next 11 months before we see the end of the study and the actual proposed rule? Okay, I, I would strongly suggest that uh, a couple things. One, that, that providers immediately take stock in what is the current situation, not only in their, build, in their building, but in their environment. Um, many times you, you drink your own Kool-Aid. And many times you will create stories about how you can't find RNs, you can't find LPNs, you can't find CNAs. But the data, when you look at your peer group, you discover, yeah, but they are. So what's the difference? Take a hard look at yourself, include in there your agency utilization, because, you know, thank goodness for agency, but also it is the worst thing for your organization to rely on agency, you know, not only just financially, but it will have a negative impact on your outcomes. And then the other thing I'll add is we really have to support the caregivers that we have and prevent them from walking out the back door. It is the hardest job, but many of these folks are there because they're very mission-driven people, but they have lives outside of the nursing home. Many of them are also caregivers to parents and to children. Um, And as we all age, more and more of us are unpaid caregivers outside of the workplace. Think about what we can do to support the totality of our staff and not just what can we ask more of them, but how can we support them to, to keep them there and keep them well and keep them happy and healthy. Agree, 100%. I think one of the things we have to reinvigorate our provider community and those people that serve them, whether you're legal, community, defense, what any of the various capacities is just a recognition of how important these providers are to their communities. They're an essential part of the healthcare delivery system in their communities. They had been for many, you know, for time immemorial, really. And I think as we can reinvigorate the idea of the importance they play and make sure that the public understands the important job they are doing, uh, it's going to make a big difference. In terms of practical advice for staffing coordinators and, and administrators and others, again, I'll mirror Stephen's point and say, that we, documenting first, what are you doing now? Uh, why are you doing it? And why is it the right thing to do? If you can keep that forefront and keep it documented and understood, I think ultimately uh, you'll be in a better position whatever CMS does uh, going forward. All right. Great insights from both of you. Really appreciate it. And certainly I know we could spend hours talking about this. Uh, appreciate a, a quick and good informative conversation on the topic. So thank you both again. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this Newsmakers podcast. From McKnight's, I'm Kim Marcellus. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in long-term care, senior living, and home care news, visit mcknights.com.